Amen. Amen. Okay, Numbers chapter 35 this evening. Lord willing, we're going to finish up the book of Numbers this evening, chapter 35 and 36. It's just a short chapter. At this point in our study in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel, of course, are on the border of the promised land. And we saw in our study last time, we sort of left off with God beginning through Moses to give instruction regarding some of the boundaries of the land. We saw there in chapter 34 as we left off uh, where the southern border and the western border and the northern border uh, and the eastern border was to be of the territory that God was actually giving to them uh, in then God began to speak to them of how when they came into the land that Joshua, of course, who would take over from Moses, Moses is about to die shortly at this point, and Joshua would then take the lead together with Eliezer, who's now the high priest, and that they would then gather together 12 men, 12 ordained, hand-selected individuals by God, one from each tribe, who would sort of be responsible to then use just their discretion and the wisdom that they had from God to be able to then apportion out the different territories of the land. Of course, the larger tribes getting larger uh, sections and parliaments of the land as would be needed because of the bigger population, the smaller tribes uh, getting smaller sections, but that one leader would be represented from each tribe and they would kind of work together as a a delegation to divide up the inheritance of the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. Now, as we come to chapter 35, we now continue with this same kind of train of thought regarding apportioning out the land, and God now begins to give some instruction regarding what territories, though small, what territories the Levites, the tribe of Levi, was to get. Remember, the tribe of Levi uh, were the ordained ministers among the children of Israel, uh, God set their tribe aside. It's from the tribe of Levi that the priestly family would come as well. And they were to tend to the ministry of the tabernacle. They were to be the spiritual teachers, the instructors in the law for the people. They were to help interpret the word of God and be, in a sense, really the ministers among the congregation and the tribe of Israel. So because of that, their inheritance wasn't a physical land inheritance as the other tribes was, as much as that God said to them, their inheritance was going to be the Lord himself and that they would be sustained by the support of the people who would bring their tithes and offerings and of course their sacrifices to the tabernacle as well as God now apportions to them some territories as we'll see cities uh, scattered all throughout the land of Canaan among the 12 tribes and this is what we begin to get as we look at chapter 35 now, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities. Now, again, when you hear the term cities, our minds tend to go to something like a Philadelphia, New York, or you know, just something that seems a little more uh, large or, or maybe uh, urbanized it, it, probably this is more of what you picture in your mind of what you might consider like a town you know something uh, a little bit smaller the Bible uses the word cities here but these are very small territories if you really look at them uh, the different ones that are apportioned out and we'll see more geographically later on where they are but these territories cities or towns however you like to refer to them and these were for the Levites to dwell in from their inheritance of their possession and you shall also give verse 2 
you shall also give the Levites notice some common land around the city. So not only they were to get a small sort of walled city area to dwell in, but then they had some pasture land outside of that. Verse 3, that they shall have the cities to dwell in and then the common land was to be for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their animals. So, uh, again, a much smaller portion of land. They didn't have large plots of land where they could be an agrarian people and cultivate you know, crops and uh, they couldn't sow and reap fields. They didn't have the ability to have large herds and animals. Again, these were typically the ways that people would sustain themselves in that day. But God does give to them a small portion of land outside of their towns or city areas so that the animals that they did have, again, remember, as the people would bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle at times, these were ways that gifts were given to the Levites and for them even just to be able to sustain their own households they did have animals obviously some of their own for again you know different forms of uh, of food and to be able to take care of themselves and and quite interesting here god does not give the levites enough in a sense to farm and so they would become preoccupied and gravitate away from their responsibilities spiritually he doesn't apportion them enough to where they could then get distracted and start having large crops and herds and fields which would pull them away from their primary calling he doesn't give them enough to do that but he does give them just enough if you would to stay in touch with everyday living just like everybody else so he does give them some land and some responsibilities and I think in some ways it was just as I said so they could stay in touch with the reality of what it takes to get by day by day to live like the rest of the people that they lived among Uh, they did have some of the same experiences but on a much smaller level so their primary emphasis and time could be dedicated to the things of the Lord as often they would go remember ultimately in shifts uh, typically they would go in 12 different shifts up to the area of the temple ultimately and they would serve their at times for a month at a time and then come back to their territory among their other duties. Verse 4 says, The common land of the cities which you shall give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. So from the walled area of the city, remember a cubit we said before is about an 18-inch measurement, the common cubit. So this is basically measuring out about 1,500 foot in all four directions from where the walls of the city were. And you shall measure, verse 5, outside the city on the east, 2,000 cubits, to the south, 2,000 cubits, the west side, 2,000 cubits, and the north side, 2,000 cubits. And the city then shall be in the middle, and this shall belong to them as common land for the cities. Verse 6, now among the cities which you shall give to the Levites... You shall appoint six cities of refuge. Now, we'll talk about that in the latter extent of the chapter here, to which the manslayer may flee. And and these to these you shall add 42 cities. So all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be 48 in total, and these you shall give to them with their common land. So uh, among the 12 tribes 
A total of 48 cities were to be given for the Levites, about 22,000 or so they were in population. And we're going to see that basically these cities are scattered all throughout the land of Canaan in different areas. And the reason why they're scattered all throughout the land of Canaan, again, is God here is very wisely sort of spreading out the spiritual influence of the Levites and the ministers in that day among the congregation all around the nation of Israel. Certainly there would ultimately be the epicenter of Jerusalem where they would come to celebrate there the feasts on annual occasions. But God here very wisely puts different Levitical cities, when you factor out all the different city territories, commentators say no more, sometimes more than you know, maybe 10 to 20 miles distance between some of these different areas where anybody could go within a 10 or a 20 mile journey and they could at least get to an area where one of these Levite cities was. And again, the reason is because they could be in those areas to give instruction in the word of God if someone needed prayer. In a sense, these were, you know, I, I, you hate to use this illustration if it's not you know, 100% accurate. It was kind of like the local churches. You know, they were kind of just established in different places and so that you would have access to a Levite minister who could answer questions about the Word of God. They could teach. They could be there to minister to the people, to pray for them to help with sacrifices and to answer spiritual questions. So God sort of spreads them out in these different 48 cities, 42 of them regular Levite cities. The other six we'll talk about are these cities of refuge. And again, as we look at this, uh, to me, it's somewhat of a reminder of sort of really what God does with us. In a sense, like the Levites, you and I as Christians we have no physical inheritance like the children of Israel do. We don't have a physical inheritance. God gave to Israel a land, but the Bible says that you and I are citizens of heaven. Uh, Peter says that we have an eternal, a spiritual inheritance, heaven itself. And God, just like the Levites here in a sense, has scattered you and I all around in different territories, different communities, you know, Northfield and Egg Harbor Township and Margate and Ventnor and Ocean City and Mays Landing and Marmora. And, and God, in a sense, takes our lives and he puts us in different geographic locations and different school systems and different places of employment and why because he wants to spread the spiritual influence among us around in areas where people have need again the bible tells us that jesus says that you and i as christians are the salt of the earth that we're the light of the world and so the lord has scattered us around purposely putting us in different locations he's put you in the job he's put you in because primarily not just does he want you to be able to earn the bucks that you need to pay your bills but also because he cares about the people that are there that he realizes that you can be a spiritual influence to. So he may have put you in the place he put you for the very purpose that he realizes I need a Levitical, if you understand, influence in that location. I need someone there who can represent the word of God, who can be a light, who can pray for somebody if they have a calamity or offer to care for them or point them towards the Lord. So the Lord, in a sense, scatters us around. You know, it's often been said before that you know, uh, Christians are a lot like manure. You know, that, that if you spread them out, fertilizer, they produce good fruit and again can cause a productive effect. But if you clump them all together, they stink. And, 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 you know, and there's a lot of truth to that. 
You know, sometimes as Christians, if we're just all clumped together, we just become a group of stinky, stuffy, self-righteous individuals. Uh, you know, and, and yet God has this wonderful way of spreading us out in a way where then it becomes healthy and we have the influence and we fertilize the world with the seeds of the gospel and the truth of the word of God in a very wonderful way. So these different cities, 48 cities now, will be apportioned for the Levites. Verse 8, here's how they were to do that. He says, the cities which you will give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribes, they were to give many cities. So if you had a larger tribe, again, it wasn't like uh, you know, 48 divided by 12, and that would be what about, would that be three, four cities? Matt's, I'm looking at Matt, he's a math teacher. He had that right on the button there right away. It's good to have a math teacher in the house. That'd be four cities in each tribal area. But that's not how God did this. God didn't do this according to just that strategic logic. He says, look, the larger tribes, they're going to have bigger areas. And again, wanting to have proximity to a Levite town, they were to give many cities because they had more to give, more territory. And from the smaller tribes, they would give few. But each shall give some of their cities to the Levites, notice, in proportion to the inheritance that each receives. So if you got a large portion of land, you could afford to give up a few extra cities. And if you had a smaller portion of land, then you only were required to give up a few of the cities for the Levites. Again, just a good reminder here how God desires for us all, really, to just you know, sort of share proportionally to, to, to do our part whatever it is you know for some of us that may be a much larger part for others of us it may be some small part but you notice everybody played a part everybody had something that they were able to surrender to give over to offer to do their part in helping according to God's plans and purposes and and God never expects more than we can give and he never expects more than we should give he doesn't push our limits and push us for more than we're able to do. And at the same time, God never expects less from us than what he knows we're capable to do. And so God understanding that, he said, larger territories give more cities, smaller territories can give smaller amounts of cities for these 48 cities. Now, verse 9 through the remainder chapter begins to now address this subject of these cities of refuge, which we have mentioned six of the 48 Levite cities were these cities of refuge where it says the manslayer could run to and flee. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, verse 10, When you cross the Jordan from the, into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint to be cities of refuge for you that the manslayer who kills, notice, any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you, notice, from protection, they were to be an asylum, a sanctuary, a safe spot, from the avenger, later that person will be called the avenger of blood, that the manslayer, someone who has accidentally killed someone, that's what that term refers to, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge, appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and then three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. And these six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally 
may flee there. So uh, here we have this interesting thing that's established. And you know, I want you to take note as we go through this as well too, especially chapter 35 as a whole. Take note how a lot of our, you know, justice system today, some of our laws, some of the constitutional practices that we have, you find a lot of the principles drawn from right here in this chapter as well as, of course, other places uh, in the Bible because our country was founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic. And so a lot of our ideas civilly and a lot of our laws and our judicial system come from principles that are found in the scripture that our forefathers recognized were beneficial. But here there's this establishment for what do you do in that culture when someone accidentally kill someone, not purposely, he's going to talk about that more in a moment, but these cities of refuge were established for someone to flee to for safety until they could get a fair and really safe trial rather than their life just being taken initially. Now the reason for this, we have this mention here that they could be flee there for refuge, verse 12, from the avenger, the avenger of blood, so that they didn't die until they stand before the congregation in judgment. We need to realize, in ancient Israel, and in many of those ancient cultures, unlike the culture we live in right now that has a very established justice system, they didn't have an established police force. Uh, they didn't have an organized judicial system, national guard, jails, and institutions. They didn't have a developed legal system like we do today in a culture that has a very established system judicially to enforce laws and justice. So in that culture, if someone in your family was killed, someone was murdered or, or killed in some fashion by someone else, each family took upon themselves the personal responsibility to avenge the loss of your dead relative. So there was an appointed person in the family, a kinsman, the term is a goel, uh, where we get the idea of a kinsman redeemer that will be developed later on. There was an appointed close blood relative, a family, if you would, a family executioner. That if someone in your family was killed, that family executioner, that avenger or avenger of blood, you know, the uncle Guido of the ancient culture, would hunt that person down, would find them, and then would execute that individual on behalf of the family or the clan to sort of render justice because of the dead relative that had been killed by that person. Now, you know, I, we look at that and we think, well, that sounds, you know, a, a little, you know, maybe barbaric, a little bit out of control. It sort of sounds like, you know, that would lead to, to feuds and, and so on and so forth. And, and certainly it would. But you have to understand, again, in a world without an established justice system, that practice and the awareness that that's how things unfolded as protocol, that served as a great deterrent for crime and violence, because you knew that if you killed somebody, that every last male in that family or clan, if that's what it took, would until their dying breath hunt you down and find you to execute justice on behalf of their dead relative as in a sense the vengeance or to take revenge upon your killing their relative. So it served as a very strong deterrent for crime. Nobody thought I can kill somebody and just hire the best lawyer in town and I'll get away with it. People knew that wasn't the case. 
because the avenger would ultimately find you. Someone from the family would continue to come until, in a sense, justice was served. So it was a suitable process of justice whenever someone was killed in that culture. Now, what's being addressed here is what do you do in the case where it's an accidental death? That's what this is referring to here. These cities of refuge were intended to be a place of asylum, a safe place that you could flee to if you didn't intentionally kill someone. If it was an accidental death, you know, you and Joe uh, Bacigalupi are out in the woods and you're cutting down wood for your family's fires back at home and as you're swinging the axe really hard, all of a sudden the axe head goes flying off and you say, oh, that didn't sound good. And then you notice Joe Bacigalupi is laying on the ground over there. And you realize, oh my goodness. You go over, you see if there's anything you can do, you see he's badly wounded, can you give him any medical attention? You realize he's gone. He's dead. At that moment, you know that very shortly, as soon as his family discovers that his life has been taken, that the avenger of blood is going to be hot on your trail and according to cultural practice, is going to kill you as retribution to avenge the life of that dead relative. So you realize, I have whatever amount of time there is between now and that family finding their dead relative here to get a head start, hightailing it to the closest city of refuge to get there as an asylum so that I can safely be kept and, in a sense, protected there in protective custody until a fair trial with evidence and witnesses could come to pass to prove my innocence that I didn't murder him. It was an accidental death. It was manslaughter. It wasn't intentional. It just was something that happened as an accident even though this person lost their life. So these cities of refuge were created for this purpose where you could flee to these locations and you would be kept safe there. And it was an understood thing. God was instituted that if that person who committed manslaughter and accidental death got to that city of refuge, they, they provided safety. It was protective custody until the trial could be worked through. And again, these were Levite cities. So there were people there who knew God well, who knew the word of God and the law, and they could work through a judicial process without the emotional attachments and so forth and being clouded in their judgment judgment to render a fair trial to seek to prove the innocence of this individual who accidentally killed someone rather than them just losing their life because the avenger caught up to them and just eliminated or ex executed them before any explanation could be given. So these cities of refuge are now created where people could flee to for refuge and protection despite what had happened unintentionally. It was a mistake and it was unintentional, but nonetheless, someone still lost the life. And you couldn't erase that. There was nothing you could do, even though it was unintentional. It was still a mistake and something that you were responsible for taking the life of another person. Verse 16, notice, but, we read, if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies. So again, willfully taking some type of a, you know, a knife, a hammer, something, and, and, and purposely as a weapon striking someone with the intention of killing them. Then the Bible says, God declares, he is a murderer. And the murderer, notice, I want you to take notice of the Holy Spirit's emphasis. Just read the text, look at it. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he strikes him with a stone in his hand, by which one could die, and if he does die, he is a murderer. And the murderer shall surely be put 
to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die and he does die, he is a murderer and the murderer shall surely be put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait, in other words, premeditated attack that leads to murder, you lying in wait, a premeditated attack, and hurls something at him so that he dies, or an enmity, great anger and animosity, he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So, Again, we see this repetition here of God saying that there is a distinct difference between accidental death, unintentional killing, and premeditated intentional murder where in anger and animosity or with premeditated forethought with a weapon of some sort seeking to harm someone or to kill someone. God says in that case, it is murder. And notice that God says repeatedly here, the murderer shall surely be put to death. That's capital punishment. Now, it does not say in the word of God that someone can't be forgiven and say they can't be saved and go to heaven still. Again, the thief on the cross was facing capital punishment. In a sense, he was being executed by the Roman government. That was capital punishment he was facing for his crimes in his culture. He was he was under the death penalty and Jesus and him have a dialogue briefly before he dies. And he says, Lord, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? I'm sorry. Those who commit crimes to the extent that you do cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you get down, pay penance, you know, I mean, you need to do some good deeds in the culture for a little while, show that you're a changed man. Jesus says nothing of that. What does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. It didn't take away his death sentence, but it did take away the debt of his sin and gave him the assurance of forgiveness and the gift of eternal life because that's received by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. But see, when a person sinks to a level where life is no longer sacred as it is from God's perspective, God has instituted that this is a healthy, necessary practice. Again, all the way back from the book of Genesis in chapter 9, pre-law, prior to the law, oh, that's the law of God. Well, well, prior to the law of God in Genesis chapter 9, God said there, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I'll require it from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. See, the Bible teaches in this chapter, if nothing else, as well as in many other chapters, the lesson in this chapter God's certainly trying to convey is life is sacred. Life is sacred. Life is a gift from God. God is the author of life. And even in the case where it was an accidental death, there were still consequences, we'll see as the chapter goes on, where you had to stay in that city of refuge to not be put to death, even though it was an unintentional and accidental 
killing that took place. You still bore the guilt of the accidental death irregardless because, again, life is sacred. And here, if someone willfully comes to the place where they no longer recognize the sacredness of life and they take someone's life in a premeditated act and, and murder someone, uh, then God, in a sense, is saying, look, if you murder someone, then you are saying by your act that you don't agree with me as the author of life that I say life is sacred. And God says, and when you sink to that level, then at that point, then your life no longer has the freedom to continue on this earth. And, and God says capital punishment is, is an answer to that. It's a justifiable answer to that. Now, that being said, I realize that people have different convictions and opinions about capital punishment. You're free to hold your own convictions and opinions. I, I just tend to prefer the Bible's conviction because like I said, it's not my idea, it's God's idea. Uh, and, and if there's anything that I think becomes unfortunate in our culture today is there's a lot of things that go on in the judicial system that make the judicial system, quite honestly, almost as corrupt as the people who need the judicial system. I mean, and it's just absolutely, uh, you know, tragic how defiled and how corrupt the judicial system itself has become. Rather than being able to just execute things in an efficient way, in a straightforward manner here. So God says, look, if it's murder, then the city of refuge does not qualify for such a person. And even if the person got there and it was recognized it was cold blood murder, they would then turn that person over to the avenger of blood, who then in a sense became the family executioner who would execute the death sentence upon that person. Verse, where were we? 22 says, however, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity, so again, back to the accidental side, or throws anything at him without lying in wait, again, you, you throw a rock to skip it across the lake and it takes one too many skips and, you know, hits somebody and, uh-oh, that didn't sound good problem there and, and someone accidentally dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm, then notice verse 24, the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled and he shall remain there, notice, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So even if you were deemed innocent as an accidental death, you still, notice verse 25, had to remain in that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Now, if that high priest was 25 years old, guess what? You were probably going to spend the rest of your life living in that city of refuge if you wanted to be safe because if you stepped outside of it, then you, in a sense, were then accessible for the avenger of blood to then take your life. If the high priest was older, then you may be there for, you know, three years. You may be there for 10 years. But here's the thing. I think this is what people were able to live with. That was all determined by God because God would determine when the high priest died. And I think people, even in a case where it was an accidental death, I think people, no doubt families, were able to say, you know what, at least that person didn't get off completely. It's in the hands of God. They may be there in that city of refuge for six months, for six years, or for the next 16 years, but it's in God's hand and God's a better judge than we are. 
And so you had to stay in that city of refuge, even if it was accidental. Verse 26, but if the manslayer, look what it says, at any time goes outside the city limits of the city of refuge where he had fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the city limits of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer because he finds him outside the walls, he shall not be guilty of his blood because he should have remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. So again, if he violated this protocol and went outside of the city of refuge, that asylum and safe place, before the high priest died, for whatever reason, if he chose to do that, then at his own risk, he was then vulnerable to lose his life. And the manslayer, I mean, the, the avenger of blood was not guilty for taking his life if he found him outside the city of refuge. But, verse 28, look at this interesting insertion. After the death of the high priest, then the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So once the high priest died, then you were completely freed to be able to go back to your hometown and you were safe the rest of your life. So you had to stay there while the high priest was alive when the incident happened. But once the high priest died, somehow the death of the high priest had from God's perspective some atoning effect where God says, now that the high priest has died, that now completely liberates you from this offense for the rest of your life. You can never be accountable for it and he could then freely go back to his hometown and could never be punished for the incident that had happened as a result of that. Verse 29 says, And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death, notice, on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony to plead against a person for the death penalty. So again, God knows humanity. So God says one testimony, one witness is not sufficient for the death penalty. There needed to be multiple credible witnesses to validate what had happened for someone to experience the death penalty. Moreover, verse 31, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death and you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge uh, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So again, the idea there is that you couldn't bribe your way out of it. You couldn't, again, <laughs> sadly as it is many times today, you, know, you couldn't just pay your way out of a situation. God said that was not acceptable. He didn't want this kind of corruption taking place in the judicial system. And so God understands you know, what we're like in our humanity. And he said that that would be unacceptable. Verse 33, God says, you, so you shall not pollute the land where you are. Look at this statement, for blood defiles the land. Now, that's a scary thought if God still holds true to that, that blood defiles the land. The Bible says in places that the, you know, the, 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 the blood between Cain and Abel, remember when Cain put to death his brother Abel and God said, his blood cries out to me. And God says, the blood defiles the land. Boy, that doesn't, that, that doesn't sound good for our nation. 50 plus million abortions. The constant violence and murder that takes place in our own culture. And God says, the blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, God says, do not defile the land which you inhabit 
in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. So God says, look, don't defile the land that you're in. And God says, the reason why is because I dwell in your midst. And it's an offense to me. In a sense, look at it this way. No person, right, enjoys living in a real, let's say, for example, crime-infested, dangerous defiled community nobody prefers to live in a community like that where there's crime and violence and 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 god says i don't either i don't like dwelling in the midst of death and destruction and violence and god says i dwell in your midst my presence is in your midst so he's saying don't defile the land in the midst of which i dwell the presence of god is no doubt offended and uh, uncomfortable with these kind of things going on. Now, as we look at this whole chapter here, the cities of refuge, if you haven't taken notice yet, the whole thing not only is just a practice that was instituted historically in Israel, but the whole idea of the city of refuge here, if you didn't notice, it's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of how Jesus is our refuge. We find our refuge and safety in him. Let me give you a few illustrations of this reality. In the same way that they could flee to the city of refuge with their unintentional guilt, and that was a safe place, they found refuge there in unintentional guilt, you and I can flee to Jesus for our refuge. And here's the amazing thing. We can flee to Jesus and find refuge that releases us from punishment, not only for our unintentional guilt, but even our intentional guilt. In that culture, it was only for unintentional guilt, the city of refuge. We can go to Jesus and find refuge and deliverance from our punishment, even from our intentional guilt, from things that we willfully did wrong because the forgiveness of Jesus is so much more incredible. And just like these cities of refuge, they were located all over strategically, three on this side of the Jordan, three on this side, north, south, and one in the middle. The reason is so they were easily accessible, so you could easily, one day's journey, get very quickly to any one of these cities in the same way. Jesus is easily accessible at all times to anyone. And it does not matter how great your guilt is. It does not matter how much unintentional mistakes you've made and how many intentional wrong things you've done. Jesus is accessible. He's a refuge and willing to forgive and give us, in a sense, asylum in him. And we are safe, take notice like the city of refuge, as long as we remain in Jesus. Remember the city of refuge? As long as you remained in the city of refuge, you were safe. If you went out of the city, it was at your own risk of perishing. And I think that's a great reminder. You know what? The important thing is the only safe place is to stay in Jesus. And you wouldn't accidentally wander outside of a city of refuge. You chose to walk outside of a city of refuge. It wasn't a oops, I didn't mean to be outside of the city of refuge. Now I'm perishing. It, it was a conscious choice. And the same way for you and I, uh, for our best welfare and safety spiritually, do you want to stay safe? Just stay in Jesus. Don't wander outside of Jesus. Stay in Jesus. You stay in Jesus, you're safe. There's refuge, there's forgiveness. And again, this story as well, the high priest is much like a picture of Jesus. The high priest, remember, it was the life of the high priest that provided what was needed so that it was a safe place. And it's the life of Jesus that we are kept safe by because Jesus is our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. 
And in the same way, remember, once the high priest died, then you were completely liberated forever from the incident and the mistake that had taken place. And in the same way, the life of Jesus as our great high priest is what preserves and keeps us safe. It is also the death of Jesus that has completely liberated us forever from any punishment of any guilt that exists in your life. Because the Bible says Jesus died once for all. And his death and taking the punishment for your crimes and your mistakes, it does not matter who else in this world wants to punish you, God doesn't want to punish you anymore because Jesus took your punishment. His death took away that punishment and has liberated you from the eternal and spiritual perspective of any guilt that exists in your life. Now, chapter 36, not a whole lot of content here. We'll just read through it. It's just sort of one thing that God adds as an institution. And in addition to what happened back in chapter 27, it says the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said to him, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Remember back in chapter 27, there were these daughters of this man Zelophehad who did not have sons. And when the land inheritance by culture and custom would pass from the father to the sons, and here's a father now who had nothing but daughters. And remember, they came to Moses and to the leaders and they said, look, we have a problem. The land goes from the fathers to the sons. Our father never had sons. He's only had daughters and our father has died and we're not going to get an inheritance and our father's name is going to perish from our family line and shouldn't we get an inheritance as well? Why should our father and family be punished because he didn't have sons? And Moses brought this matter before the Lord and, and God said, you know, what they say is right. And remember, God instituted this principle whereby if there was no sons, then the land would go to the daughters or then the next closest relative so that the land inheritance stood within the family. So, it's this same subject now that's brought up of the daughters receiving the land inheritance. The tribe of Manasseh comes and says, verse 3, Now, if those daughters are married to any of the sons of other tribes, the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from their inheritance of our fathers and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. In other words, the land inheritance would transfer to another tribe. So it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the Jubilee, remember that was every uh, so many years, the time of Jubilee would come every 50th year where then all the land would go back to its original owners. They said even that won't work in this situation because when the Jubilee of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added back to the inheritance of the tribe to which they have married so the inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. And Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, what the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. So here's their concern. They come and say, wait a minute. You said that the daughters can receive the land, but the problem is if those daughters then marry men from other tribes, 
then that land is then going to pass over to the sons and to that tribal group. And their concern was what's going to happen is the land is going to become like a patchwork quilt. (laughs) And instead of being Simeon and Judah and Issachar, you'll have a little bit of Simeon over here in Issachar. And and all the land will get all mixed up. And they said, this is going to be a a real problem. And even in the year of Jubilee, that won't work because it will go back to the original tribe, which is now the tribe that has sons in it, to which they've married in. So they bring this forth as a concern. And again, the Lord says, boy, that, you know, that... What they're bringing up is correct, so we need to institute a new policy, a legislation to kind of regulate that particular situation. Verse 6, here's what it is. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry, notice, whom they think is best. So they have freedom, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. Now, don't instantly go, ew, gross, family members. There were 53,000 people in the tribe, okay? So there's there's, there's a lot of different families represented there. Don't don't get this bizarre idea in your mind, but they need to marry within the tribe of Manasseh. So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of of one of the family, notice again, of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel may each possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus, no inheritance, God didn't want the land to change hands, notice, from one tribe to another. But every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep his own inheritance. And just as the Lord commanded, so did the daughters of Zelophehad for Mala, their names here again, Terza. Hogla, but she was pretty hogla. Uh, sorry, just the end, keeping you awake for the last moment or two. And Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to the sons of their father's brothers, and they were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. So God institutes this new policy, this new legislation, a way to regulate the situation that the land didn't transfer and they didn't lose their inheritance. And the way that God does that, look with me back in verse 6, because I think here it states it the most clearly, this was their simple instruction. They may marry whom they think best, but they had to marry within their father's tribe. Here's what God's saying regarding marriage for those daughters. He says, they have freedom within boundaries. They have freedom within boundaries. God says, they can choose to marry whoever they want of the 53,000 males available. The Bible said there was 53,000 age 20 and older back in the last census in that tribe. They, They had freedom to choose who they wanted to marry, what the guy looked like, you know, what his personality was like. But the one criteria was it had to be someone within the same tribe. And I think it's a great principle spiritually for how marriage should take place for us as Christians as well. God gives us freedom in marriage, but yet there are to be boundaries. That boundary is that we're to marry someone within the same spiritual tribe, a fellow believer, someone who has the same inheritance spiritually as we do. So God says, you can marry whoever you think is best. If you're attracted to this type or you like those kind of personalities, God says, you have freedom. You can marry whoever you want, 
but it needs to be a believer. You're not to be unequally yoked. So freedom within boundaries, that's always a safe way and it ensures that your inheritance spiritually doesn't get corrupted, defiled, and lost. And I think it's a great principle. And verse 13 wraps up our book. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And these faithful Wednesday night people studied the book of Numbers and together said, Amen. Let's stand together.